6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Job, chapter 42. So the lessons from Job as we wrap this up here. Book of Job is far too complex for a once over lightly treatment. And to probe its really deeper lessons, we have to review the entire account again. As the oldest book of the Bible, of course, it was probably a contemporary, he was probably a contemporary of Abraham, although he didn't live in the promised land. We, he lived in a place called Uz, of which we know very little. Yet his faith and insights reflects a heritage that apparently was handled down from Adam and Eve and then through Noah and his sons. And what's astonishing as you study it from that point of view, it is amazingly consistent with the greater revelation of both the Old and New Testaments. Many of these concepts in Job leap out at us and are simply echoes of what we learn in the New Testament epistles. Now, one of the many lessons we learn if we go th- as we go through this book is we find, and we find the same lesson in every book of the Bible, but how appropriate it is here in the oldest book of the Bible, is that it strips away our illusions and presents life as it really is. As a businessman, I think all, uh, all of us have learned that there's nothing more precious in, in information sense than perspective. The details you can always find out if you know what questions to ask. The problem is you need a valid perspective. And one of the most painful and yet essential blessings is the stripping away of our delusions and our erroneous presuppositions. It always hurts to have to let go of a presumption we've made, and yet what a blessing it is to have that torn away from us if it's untrue. That happened to the, in the American Revolution. Tom Paine wrote eloquently about it. That happened to Israel last summer. They finally realized that their, that the, their adversaries who had no interest in peace. That was just a, you know, a charade. How painful it was, but how important it is for them to, to realize that. Anyway, that's exactly why it's so important that the Spirit of God set us straight through the Word of God and correcting our thinking by the renewing of our minds, as Paul admonishes us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Now, the first surprise in the book of Job is that we get a, a behind-the-scenes peek at what prompted the whole drama, this conversation between God and Satan. We discover that there's a larger cosmic drama being played out behind our own frustrations, our suddenly adverse circumstances, perverse people that are put in our path, and whatever other troubles we encounter. One of the things we need to keep in mind is we have to put us be like Job. Job didn't know about that conversation in chapter 1. We do. In our lives, when there's some confluence, adverse circumstances, or whatever, we should be cautioned that there's th- there are things going on behind the scenes of which we're not aware. We're both the pawns and the prize. 
in this uh, game called life. And it's not a spectator sport. I think that's one of the reasons why there's a, a sort of a groundswell of reaction to the traditional church attendance. The newer generations are not satisfied by sitting in a pew and watching a performance. They want to participate. That's why the home churches and the cell churches and all those and the smaller bodies are so vibrant and growing. Says people want their sleeves rolled up and want to be part of the action. They want to be in a group where they know the names of the other people's kids and can pray for them with meaning and so forth. That's exciting. Anyway, through from the book of Job, we begin to get a glimpse of this powerful team of evil that is also directed at you and I. And we are also the focus of such an attack. We're no longer sitting in the bleachers. We are in the middle of the game. And that's what Paul emphasizes in Ephesians 6, to put on the whole armor. You put that on before the battle starts, except we're already in enemy territory. We're already in the engagement. We need to put on our armor daily. You need to understand Ephesians 6, review it, understand what those seven elements of the armor are, and put them on daily. Urgent. Your your survival requires it. See, we all, we all make a tragic mistake by trying to see the situation only in terms of what's visible to us. We must never forget what we were shown in the first chapter as we face the problems in our own lives. You know, we tend to presume that uh, we deserve to have a good time and enjoy ourselves. We all take that sort of for granted. But nothing could be further from the Christian position. We're not here to have a good time. God gives us some good times, but every one of them comes as a gift of His love and grace. They are never anything we deserve. You know, we have a tendency, if something good comes along, well, we earned that. We, we worked hard for that, whatever. Be careful of that. Be careful of that. We're here to fight the powers of darkness. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, uh, 10 through 17, really. Uh, uh, re- review it. Put it in your notes. And uh, we're engaged in continual combat with powerful forces that are trying to control human history. And that continually frustrates our attempts to plan our careers, our families, our lives, our retirement, what have you. And I think that's why God taught us right up front what's really going on behind the scenes at the very early part of this book. But there's much, there's something much deeper going on here. The primary lesson of Job is what the book reveals about the nature of human evil. Not Satan now, human evil. We've gone through all the discourses of Job's friends and they tend to view wicked people in terms of murderers, thieves, rapists, fornicators, cruel tyrants, you fill in the list. Unjust, wretched people. They are the wicked, as Job's counselors would see them. But as we begin to understand more clearly the things they point out are wicked are really only the fruit of something deeper in human nature. And they emerge from the deep-seated root of pride that expresses itself as independence, self-sufficiency, I can run my own life. I've got what it takes. I don't need help from anybody. That kind of an attitude. Jesus summarized it this way. Now, we're not talking about those guys, the murderers and brigands on the highways. We're talking about us. Jesus said, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies, so with Matthew 15. All evil comes from the root of pride. That's evil in its purest form. It's interesting that in the millennium, after a thousand years of perfect rule, man still rebels. 
Satan's been bound for a thousand years, and man still blows it. Important lesson there. What we learn from this book, the book of Job, is that pride is expressed not just in terms of murder and thievery and robbery, but also as in in Job's friends. Bigotry, pompousness, self-righteous legalism, critical judgmental attitudes, condemnation of others, harsh sarcastic words, vengeful and vindictive actions against someone else. Human evil is not confined to the criminals of the land. It's present in every human heart in this room. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is incurably wicked, desperately wicked in the King James. In the Hebrew, it means incurably wicked. And pride is the root of all sin and expresses itself in many ways. Okay, having said all that, what's faith then? Let's re-examine what faith is all about. Job thought he was exercising faith when he obeyed God and did what was right, when it was clearly in his best interest to do so. Well, that was Satan's accusation, wasn't it? Many people today think they're exercising great faith when they simply believe that God is there. When they live their lives day by day with the recognition that God is watching and that He's present in our affairs. They do right because they know that if they do not do right, they get into trouble. That's the, same, that's the flip side of the same coin, isn't it? And this, of course, is a form of faith, but it's a very weak faith. They live at the level of serving God only when it is in their best interest to do so, and that was Satan's accusation against Job to start this whole drama. Remember what he said in chapter 1? He said, Job, he says to God, Job only serves you because you take care of him. Remove your hand of blessing and he'll curse you to his face. That was his accusation. So the whole panorama was to prove Satan's a liar. See, many of, many are like that. The moment blessing ceases or difficulty of trial comes along, they want to quit. You know, as we've gone through our many decades of Christian experience, one of the most discouraging things is to watch the people that drop away. Old friends of ours that we attended our Bible studies that we thought were faithful. The going gets a little rough and they sort of wash their hands of it because God didn't somehow conform to their expectations. There are people like that, and I can't think of anything within the body that's more, more bigger discouragement. The kind of faith that makes the world sit up and take notice is revealed when we serve God when it is difficult to do so. When serving Him is the hardest thing to do. That's what the book of Job is all about. Job, despite all that pain and suffering and all that balderdash served up by his comforters, he didn't know the answers. He even was at the point where he doubted the fellowship he had with God, but he still, still had faith in him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I know that my Redeemer shall live with that he shall stand at that latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Wow. Well, let's remember Gethsemane. Jesus was there and it wasn't easy. He was extremely sorrowful. The doctor present, Dr. Luke, said he sweated as if it were drops of blood. That's not a layman's assessment. That was Dr. Luke's assessment. Yet the key words were, not my will, but thine be done. And that's what we see in Job. Here, Job, although he trembles, he falters, he fails, 
But the last thing he does is he clings in helplessness to God. Job ultimately becomes an example of faith. Great faith is exercised when we feel we are the least faithful. When we are so weak that we cannot do anything but cling. In that moment, heaven is rejoicing. The angels are watching and rejoicing at the greatness of that kind of faith. See, all this really reveals the true nature of fallen man. Man at his best in his flesh is in the person of Job. That's the best we could ever be in the flesh. See, in the open book, we have a highly respected and honored man, sincere, moral, devoted, selfless, godly man who spends his time doing deeds, helping people, obviously intent on doing what God wants. He's a deserving man. Many are like that, not even Christian, but they live on those terms. But see, this book is designed to strip away those outward appearances and show Job as he really is. He finally came himself to see that he was self-deceived. He imagined that he had the resources to handle life and his problems. And we too often imagine that we can, we have the power to stand and be true to what we believe. Peter did too. Boy, though they run, I'll die for you. It wasn't very long when he folded, right? This book also reveals that even Job, as humble as he seemed, also he discovered that he himself was a lover of prestige and status. He longed for the good old days when, as they were stripped away from him. When all was stripped away, he was querulous, angry, upset, because he'd been denied what he thought he deserved. So, see, the other thing we discover as we go through the book of Job... Job's self-vindication and self-justification makes God look less than he is, and that's their big sin. This is the terrible evil of that attitude. It robs God of his glory. Paul reminds us that no flesh shall glory in his presence, 1 Corinthians 1.29. One of the most profound insights that I encourage you to jot down and reflect, challenge if you can, that every sin... Every error that you can encounter derives from a false view of the character of God. I believe that sin is sin because of that dynamic. Every sin, every false doctrine, every error derives from a false view of the character of God. I'm fascinated with Dave Hunt's manuscript. Just finished reviewing it and giving him an endorsement for his latest book. It is called, What Love Is This? Subtitle, Calvinism's Misrepresentation of the Character of God. Boy, that's going to be a, I kid it, Dave. He always tries to find the largest body of his following that he can alienate. <laughs> the point isn't Arminianism or Calvinism. The point is, what does it say about the character of God? That's the final, ultimate, critical yardstick. The character of God. Well, obviously, though, not to dismiss it, that one of the great, of the several themes in this book, of course, one of the great themes is the reason for suffering in the Christian life. It's interesting, none of us protest 
when we are told that suffering is sent by God to punish wrongdoers. We view that as appropriate. In fact, we have some that we'd like to add to his list, I suppose. <laughs> that satisfies our sense of justice, except when it, and we happen to be on the receiving end. Then, of course, it's unfair. We can even handle it when the Bible teaches that suffering was sent to awaken us when we tend to go astray. You can buy that. That computes. C.S. Lewis said it so eloquently, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. He quips our friend C.S. Lewis. But that's not all that the book of Job teaches us about suffering. There's something far greater than that. And this should have been obvious to us when we read the Gospels. And here's the fact that may startle you to put in perspective. Jesus suffered. Well, now, wait a minute. (laughs) He didn't suffer because uh, he was a wrongdoer. That one goes out the window. He didn't suffer because he needed to have his attention captured by God. That goes out the window. Yet his life was filled from suffering, uh, with suffering from the beginning to the end. He had rejection, misunderstanding, disappointment, cruelty, harsh words, unjust treatment, all the way through. As the Old Testament emphasized, they gave him a title, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That was his descriptor in Isaiah 53, verse 3. Why did he suffer? He suffered because suffering is also a way of allowing God to demonstrate that Satan is a liar and a cheat. Satan's premise was the underlying challenge in this book, that men serve God only because God blesses them. If you remove the blessing, even men will curse God to his faces. This is a position. Man does not see any intrinsic value in God himself. Only man's self-interest makes him serve. That's Satan's lie. That's his premise. And by the way, far too many believers have confirmed that God-demeaning perspective of Satan's. Suffering is sent to prove that Satan is wrong. God will be served even when he does not bless any longer because he is God. And he is worthy of praise and of honor in the service of mankind. And how that echoes all through the book of Revelation, that refrain, starting with four and finally building up to seven elements there. Just study the book. Job teaches us that suffering is a means by which evil is answered and God is vindicated. And it leads to a high and glorious privilege to be granted to some of us to uphold the glory of God in the midst of the accusations of the devil and his world. Some of us suffer because we eminently deserve it. Some of us, sometimes it comes to awakeness, but sometimes it's granted to us as a high and holy privilege to be part of what Paul calls sharing the sufferings of Christ, quote, filling up that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for his body's sake, which is the church. That's a very profound reason it's called the body of Christ. But there's even more. The book of Job also teaches us through the symbolism of the two beasts, the Leviathan and the Behemoth, how God handles evil, the world and the flesh, as well as the devil. But the greatest theme of all in this book 
is the revealing of the character of God himself. Many people see God as a cold and personal being, distant from us, uncaring, often ruthless and vindictive, powerful but without compassion. The God of the Old Testament, you hear some people speak of that, as if it's in contrast to the New Testament, except God changes not. He's always the same. He's compassionately aware of our problems. He's deeply concerned about us. He's carefully controlling everything that touches us. We saw that very skillfully presented in the book of Job. He's patient. He's forgiving. And he's ultimately responsible for all that happens. Nothing can happen to you that isn't father-filtered. Boy, we need to understand that and cling to that when trouble comes. It's interesting. The book of Job opened with three main characters, God, Satan, and Job. But it closes with Satan faded away. He's in the background, finally disappears. Job is kneeling as God declares, Okay, Job, I'm responsible. Any questions? And Job doesn't have any questions. Job is able to glimpse that God is working out his vast cosmic purposes. He has no questions to ask whatsoever. So the final view of God in this book is of a being that is of incredible wisdom and power and is is weaving a tapestry far beyond the dreams and imaginations of mere man. And he's working out magnificent purposes of his infinite joy that he will give to us if we wait for his ends to be fully accomplished. The book, by the way, opened... Or alluded, I should say, alluded to a time when the sons of God shouted with joy at the creation. In the New Testament, in the book of Romans, Paul tells us in Romans 8, the day will come when the sons of God will be revealed. And all the creation will shout an even greater glory than was hailed at the creation itself. And it will be a new creation. And how the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's in Romans 8, verses 18 and 19, both of those ideas. And Jesus also underlined this when he indicated there's no higher honor than this. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So we need to see life as God sees it. Never again in all eternity will we ever again have the privilege of bearing suffering for his namesake in the day of reproach. This is our opportunity right now. We'll go through eternity wishing we'd done a better job when we had the chance. What an honor if it be extended to any of us. In his name indeed. So ends the book of Job. I encourage you with this perspective to go through it again on your own. And I suspect more will leap out at you than you would imagine. So I leave you with that. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you that you are our God. We thank you, Father, that you care for us with such specificity, such detail, such thoroughness that we can't imagine. We thank you, Father, for the book of Job as you've chosen to reveal all this to us. We thank you, Father, for showing us how fruitless we are on our own, how helpless we are to deal 
with that which confronts us. And Father, we thank you for the perspective that this book yields to us. We thank you, Father, that while we are the pawns, we're also the prize of this great game, this great conflict, this great cosmic conflict. We thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit. We do pray, Father, that he would continue to reveal you to us through your word. We do pray, Father, that we might more fully apprehend just who you really are. We thank you, Father, for the visibility of your creation. We thank you, Father, for the the opportunities we have to behold your majesty in your handiwork. Help us, Father, never to forget who you are. And help us, Father, to more fully understand just what you would have of us in return. As we come to you, Father, devoid of all pretense, devoid of all pride, having no presumptions of merit on our part, but we simply cling to that cross where our eligibility was paid for, for this privilege of coming before you. Father, we do ask you to take each of us, take our lives without reservation, without any pretense that it has any value but for you. We ask you, Father, to take it, guide us, illuminate that path before us, what you'd have of us. Help each of us, Father, to grow in understanding as Job did. Help us, Father, to be more responsive to what you would have and not what we imagine. We just put it all before your throne, Father, as we commit ourselves into your hands, indeed, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Job. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, when we begin a new series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.